Hey everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. This podcast started off as an experiment. I thought, hey, I'll make a podcast. I'll throw some things out there. It started off as originally mostly conversations between my friend Paul Moore and me, which were unscripted, totally unscripted, and it sort of morphed or evolved into that, plus occasionally I just make my own things, whatever I'm interested in or content or ideas or uh, that sort of stuff. But it, it it's grown from being just like something that I've done randomly whenever I feel like it to I have the desire to make uh, more consistent and better podcasts. And I have now quite a number of listeners and a lot of downloads. So I'm putting a lot more time, energy, effort, and creativity into these podcasts, which means I hope they're better. And also, I'm giving you an opportunity to help support me, not through advertisements. That was one path I thought of, um, but just very simply through donations. You can make a one-time donation on my website, kentdobson.com. If you want a more consistent way of supporting this podcast and other things that I'm into, you can click on the Patreon button on my website, which I just set up, and do a sort of a monthly deal. And it will help make these better. I might even buy a better microphone, for example. And I have some other ideas in terms of resources that um, I'm starting to work on. So if that, if this podcast has meant something to you and you have the means to support it, that would be amazing. I'd be forever grateful. This is a brave new world of awesomeness in that there's a relationship between me and directly the consumer. There's no middle person. There's no publishing world. It's just the microphone, the internet, and this exchange that takes place. So it's, it's amazing to me. So if anyway, if that interests you, you can help support this podcast through my website, kentdobson.com. You can also access uh, the Patreon site through um, patreon.com forward slash kentdobson. And um, yeah, so with that said, man, I... <laughs> Here's the podcast for today. The soul doesn't care about your safe space. Yeah. Um, which right away you might be feeling, oh no, now this podcast is unsafe. Well, maybe it is. And I I sometimes avoid things that uh, bother me. I mean, it's one of my uh, sub-personalities, an avoidant escapist strategy that rears its head and um, sometimes it's around difficult content. So I hear things like people using the word safe space and something about it bothers me, but I don't want to look too hard because it's offensive. Um, as soon as somebody says, Hey, this is not a safe space. Where do you go from there? What, how do you respond to such a thing? What part of you needs a safe space? What is a safe space? Um, why does it appear to be the case that almost at every turn you can say, this is not a safe space, this is not a safe relationship, this is not a safe work environment? For who? For what part of you is my question. So those are the things I want to try to go after in this podcast and try to bring some clarity to it. And I want to use uh, an article or part of an article from Ken Wilber. So... Uh, he has a book called One Taste. It's a series of journal entries. I highly recommend it. It's one of the more accessible and readable uh, Ken Wilber books. And in it, he has um, one journal entry that is 
is about this dynamic between translation and transformation in religious or spiritual circles. And I want to talk a bit about that article and about those categories, the category of translation versus, or and, I would be better, translation and transformation, because I think it relates to this question of safe spaces and what part of us needs a safe space and when do we not need a, quote, safe space. So I'm going to use Ken Wilber. So, I mean, this could be in my category of podcasts, of stuff that helps, meaning this conversation with Ken Wilber uh, around um, translation and transformation, but I'm trying to do something more than that and um, talk about what, um, how the soul might feel about our obsession with safe spaces. And let me, let me just talk about even more than that. I remember a few years ago, I was in uh, Israel, which I just got back from, by the way, and my, my good friend, who's uh, a guide and and owns a travel agency there named Boaz, he asked me one time, completely serious and genuine, he said, do Americans always carry hand sanitizer with them? <laughs> and the question made me laugh because my first response was no. And then all of a sudden I thought about it and, and, and I thought, well, actually it's on the rise. You know, you look at kids going into elementary school with their backpacks and they've got little hand sanitizer on there. And of course, I don't want my kids to get sick at school. That's part of what happens. But what is this obsession with cleanliness and safety and um, and so forth and so on? It, it's It's become a kind of like pathology in a way and seems to be not even rooted in science, in, in, in the scientific reality of nature itself. I mean, really at every turn, everywhere we go, including um, every shop we enter, it's totally unsafe and we can somehow protect ourselves with things like hand sanitizer. You know, what? what's going on here? And um, I don't know, I'm sure you can even think of ways in which this uh, craze of safety is becoming sort of front and center and especially in spiritual circles this is not a safe group this is not a safe space this is not a safe leader of this small group this is not a safe church my pastor doesn't make me feel safe um and what what what's happening so let me make a kind of general observation the the ego i'll start off with a conversation about the ego the ego is is the tip of an iceberg that we might call the psyche or maybe more broadly consciousness itself. And what I mean by the tip of the iceberg, the tip is the ego, who we think we are at any given moment. And if you've had any kind of therapy or counseling or done any kind of psycho-spiritual work, you know that you are more than your ego. You've tasted that, perhaps in meditation, perhaps in a in a a moment of transcendence or a descent to soul where suddenly, or even, even taking seriously, uh, your dream world. What, what part of you is dreaming? And it apparently not the waking self, not the ego, not the, who we think we are. And, and in a broad sense, the great spiritual traditions and spiritualities more broadly give us a path or pathways to transcend the ego or descend beneath the ego to use my metaphor. And once you've tasted bits of that, the ego doesn't seem to play the same role 
maybe not all the time, but it doesn't it doesn't take the driver's seat of who you think you are because you've tasted something beneath that or above that or whatever kind of uh, language you you you're comfortable with. So we might even say more than that, the, the best of the best spiritual traditions not only help you transcend the ego, but something of the ego gets demolished, rearranged, deconstructed, annihilated, or killed. And in the ashes, maybe something of the ego is put back together, but it's not, it's not the same constructed form that it was before its own death, if that makes sense. In other words, who you thought you were is the thing that uh, dies, a kind of ego death. And, and of course, this is not a one-time thing. The great spiritual traditions say there can be many deaths and rebirths, and maybe the ego is something that needs to be worked on over time, and the rearrangement needs to be worked on over time. So um, another word about, about ego, who we think we are, including our persona, our roles, our our, the ma persona means masks, but the roles that we have and cherish and need in the world, um, our jobs, our titles, our names that make sense to us and other people, all very ego-oriented. You can't live without a, uh, without the ego. I mean, I know in a cliche sense, people's, people will say things like, um, of a great um, spiritual person, they don't have an ego. Well, I don't really believe that, first of all. I would say their their ego maybe is in service to something else, but you, you're always going to have a waking sense of who you are, who you are in the world and how you present yourself in the world. And you'll wake up in the morning and you'll have choices. What kind of clothes do should I wear today? Um, should I keep my appointments? Should I uh, make some plans for the future? Should should I worry about what's for dinner because my kids are going to come home hungry? This These are ego-oriented activities, and of course there's nothing wrong with that. It's just if it's the only thing in charge, it becomes pathological. You simply don't know that there's more of you there. There's a deeper self, a true self, a soul. Um, or in the spiritual sense, you don't know that... Um, the ego can be transcended and you can have a taste of spirit and union and oneness in which the ego uh, is annihilated and there's a vast emptiness. You haven't tasted these realities so you think that's all I have which makes the ego desperate, clingy, and risk averse which leads us kind of toward the question of safe spaces. Let me say one other thing about ego that I'll borrow uh, a little from Richard Rohr. He says... Uh, you always know when the ego is front and center because it's afraid of otherness, which is like a such a, I think, cool and simple way of putting it. Our ego is afraid of otherness because otherness is not us. And in a sense, anything other can be and oftentimes is a threat to our ego. This is true in the big sense. You you um, you're at work and you you're in a meeting and you've you think you have like seven great ideas and all of a sudden somebody has an idea that is obviously way better than yours but you can't admit it so you're you're threatened you're defensive you think they're the problem you think there's something man manipulative about this person whether it's true or not is beside the point the otherness of the idea and of the person is the thing that threatens your ego take take that and use any kind of scenario you want you know what it's like to be threatened by otherness and that can be highly personal we can make that more um, ethnocentric threatened by groups 
like conservatives or liberals or progressives or fundamentalists or or races and ethnicities and religions and so forth and so on, what gets threatened in that scenario is the ego, who I think I am at any given moment. And the otherness of the other um, is a kind of active threat, you might say, or it's experienced as an active threat. And anytime the ego is threatened, the instinctual self is also involved in this and the primary reactions or reactivity is fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the things that happen. And, 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 and at least in my view, at least, that's always the case um, with the threat of the otherness. And that's sort of maybe a, a, a clue or a thread worth following when you're activated in flight or fr flight or freeze. What part of you um, is feeling this threat? You know, well, in a general sense, it's your ego. Now, a, a few more uh, things about ego here. So one way I, that I found helpful is to think about ego in a general sense as healthy or unhealthy. In other words, you can easily and oftentimes do manifest, that word also sometimes annoys me, an unhealthy ego, which is reactive, fight, flight, freeze, defensive, um, manipulative. It's the threatened ego. But there's also a healthy way the ego can be in the world, which can be much more generous and calm and occasionally rational and um, can take into consideration not um, interests not that are not just self-centered. Maybe this is a, a healthier ego. And examples of a healthier ego in the world are people who kind of know who they are and their purpose. They have some sense of purpose and they belong because the the probably you could say most of all the ego wants to belong wants to know who it is by um the by by typically the groups or scenarios in which it feels at home or that it belongs let me be more clear when i worked at a church so i worked at uh, mars hill here in grand rapids and one of the conversations that happen regularly around the table, around the inner circle, was um, about what the church was actually offering people. And the language we tended to use was, hey, if you're a part of Mars Hill, and by extension, we might say, if you want to make it more spiritual, the kingdom of God, we would say uh, we offered and offer identity belonging and purpose identity who who i am in the world belonging you belong here you matter you're part of our group and purpose and meaning we're up to certain things in the world and we have a certain aim now identity belonging and purpose is really 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 important work and the great religions and traditions offer those three things even countries offer those three things. Maybe they change and morph over time, but identity, I know who I am, I know the group that I'm a part of, and I and I belong somehow to the group, and it's clear to me and others that I belong, that's the crucial part, and I've got some aim, some purpose. In fact, I don't think we can live without these things. 
And if you bring in a little Carl Jung at this point, he's the one that sort of coined the the idea of the first half of life and the second half of life. The first half of life is about developing a healthy enough ego presence in the world that has identity, belonging, and purpose. It almost, from, from a purely sort of uh, psychologically secular sense, it doesn't matter what the group you end up belonging to. As long as you have some sense of you know who you are, you belong somewhere, and you're going somewhere, that it's a frame. It frames in the experience. And actually, I think to annihilate it is to enter a kind of darkness, a flat land of darkness that is really, really hard to overcome. I always feel like most of us, and I would include myself in this, need help in the ego department, need some self-esteem, <laughs> need some um, a, a group to which they belong. That's, I think, part of the motivation of safe spaces. I need a safe enough space that I can feel at home, that my identity is is um, is honored, and that there's a sense of shared purpose. Most of us need help. In other words, we need help in the first half of life. Here comes the problem, though. What else is there? And is it possible that identity, belonging, and purpose become, in the end, a block toward the deeper sense of self, the true self, the soul's aim and purpose, or even a block to experiences of the divine, of God, of union, of one taste, of, or you might even say, of enlightenment, because any, um, any sense of divine encounter or authenticity that's down-rooted uh, beneath the ego threatens both the ego plus the culture, identity, belonging, and purpose. This is why groups say, I'm sorry, your experience doesn't count. Therefore, you're out of the group. And then you're cast out as a wanderer looking for maybe another group in which I can identify and belong and find meaning and purpose. That's what a lot of people call um, the spiritual journey, just searching for a group belonging. What I'm suggesting is that there's something beyond all that. And I'd even like to suggest our hunger and thirst for a safe space, although initially sometimes essential, especially if you are in a dangerous environment, because one of the things I maybe ought to be clear about, and this is a bit of a caveat, if you are in an unhealthy and dangerous relationship or group, and what, I, what do I mean by that? It's dangerous to your psychological well-being and, to, and dangerous physically to you. You ought to make every effort to get the hell out of there and find a group, an organization that can help you leave. You find a therapist and pay whatever it takes to help you transition out of such a toxic environment. So if that's what we're talking about, then yes, you need a safe space. But that's not how most people are using the phrase. Let's be honest about that. They're just getting pricked here or there. They don't like this or that, and suddenly it's an unsafe environment. Well, what I'm suggesting is getting pricked or prodded is the ego, the sense of self, identity, belonging, and purpose. And I need that to affirm me, which would be sort of a key word in this kind of safe space talk. All right. I hope I'm like, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm digging around and stuff and I, I still, I feel, I actually don't feel bad, but, um, 
I don't know. I get. I guess I feel a, a sense of both danger and allurement because if there's something more than that, what is it? And 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 how can we set a course where um, our own spiritual life doesn't, in the end, just serve the ego's sense of safety? I guess that's the that's what I'm trying to explore. Now, how can I say this with any confidence? Those who are the great masters from the wisdom tradition do not talk about safety. They do not talk about affirmation. They do not console most of the time. There might be some consolation, but most of the time, it's much more like desolation. It's Jesus saying, sell everything you have. That's dramatic. He says, no one who puts his hand or her hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's dangerous talk. Or think about Merton's prayer, which I included in, in at the very end of my book, Bitten by a Camel, in which he says, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know if I'm doing your will. All I know is that I have the desire to, but I may be led, here's the line, by a way that I know nothing about. What do you mean a way I may be led by a way that I know nothing about? That is unsafe. And the great traditions and myths and stories say you get to a certain point and either you walk into the dark wood, which is totally unsafe and dangerous and might just annihilate you, or you stay back in the safety of the kingdom. You stay back in the safety of the village. That's what I'm talking about. Or it's Peter. Peter, I've been thinking a lot about Peter because there's something about the life of Jesus ending in his early 30s that feels a bit incomplete in a way. Like, where do you go from there? And I think Peter is an interesting character because he lives much longer. He doesn't die at 30. He not only experiences uh, the life and death of Jesus, but then tries to live out his own transformation for many years to come. But, but one line at the end of the Gospel of John I find so intriguing. Jesus says to Peter, when you were young, I'm paraphrasing, you did whatever you wanted. You went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will, you will be led by a way you know nothing about. That is the first half of life and second half of life summed up in a tiny phrase. When you're young, you went around and did what you want. You found your group. You belonged. You thought you knew who you were. There was enough safety involved. You had a sense of aim and purpose. But I'm telling you, to go any further, that's going to be taken away. And you're going to be led into the darkness, into the forest, into a way you know nothing about, into your own uh, descent, if you will. And speaking of being led, think about Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted. Well, that's not a safe space. How can the spirit, that's what it actually says, the wind, the mystery of God leads Jesus to be tempted. That's, you know, I mean, imagine if Jesus said, hey, I'm just, I'm looking for a safe space out here. That doesn't even make any sense. Or, or the bigger narratives like Abraham, leave, go to a land I will show you, go to a territory you know nothing about leave home base that requires a certain amount of danger it, or like jesus saying narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through that road the narrow gate there's there's something that 
it's dangerous and small about um, about the path. Or I just thought about Jonah. Like there's a lovely line in Jonah where they it just says, and so the men threw Jonah overboard. Wait a minute. How that's not that's not a safe. Can't we sit down and, and have a chat about this on the boat and discover a way that we can um, everyone is heard and um, Jonah can air his grievances and the and the men on the ship can air those and we can sort of come to um, a, a polite way of holding the tension. No, they throw him overboard and where into the unknown, the liminal, the wilderness, into exile, into wandering, into ego disrobing. In other words, or ego annihilation and disruption. That's where these great stories seem to be going. So all this obsession with safe spaces, I'm going to be as direct as I can, can block us from that. It can keep us from the edge. In fact, I think in many respects, that's what we want. And we're just not very conscious of it. We don't want to be led to the edge because the edge is unsafe. But that's where the change happens. That's where transformation happens. And I think that's um, enough said there. That that will at least get me to Ken Wilber's thoughts on translation and transformation. So some basic observations. Ken Wilber says that religion, in a most general sense, offers most of the time a translative experience. It translates the old myths, stories, forms, metaphors, ideas, and beliefs to the next generation. And when you adopt those myths, metaphors, language, doctrines, belief systems, rites of passage, whatever, when you believe them or adopt them or make them a part of your life, you find your sense of identity, belonging, and purpose. That is not a bad thing. But what he says about it is it shores up the separate self. That's the language I think that's so key. It shores up, protects, defends, comforts, um, and affirms the separate self, i.e. how I'm using the ego right now. The separate self, the ego self, it shores it up. It says you matter. You belong. And that's not a bad thing. That's partly, I mean, Ken Wilber goes to, to some, I was going to say extremes. I don't know if it's extreme or not, but he says, this is the glue that holds society together. And the value systems, the belief systems of the group, um, it's how you raise healthy enough kids and how you have a healthy enough culture with, with rules and expectations and um, uh, a basic frame. So I don't think, he, he says, we can't leave, live without it. We need some translation. But let's just be honest, translation is not transformation. It's simply translating what's gone before into a palatable form that can be believed and held, that helps the ego, i.e. the separate self, grow up um, or find itself. But what's being found is the separate self, if that makes sense. He also says something else about this translation. It offers his word legitimacy. It offers legitimacy to the separate self. Identity belonging mission or identity belonging purpose. Legitimacy. Or maybe to use a little bit of Bill Plotkin's language, which I like, it offers conformity. Especially at a certain stage of life. You conform 
to the group and that legitimizes who you are. And and this legitimacy is what Ken Wilber says is the greatest single social glue um, in all of human history, a sense of group legitimacy. And you don't tamper with it lightly, which is part of the scenario we're in now where um, religion is just being uh, totally annihilated from everything from scientific rationalism to um, postmodern flatland pluralism and and it's imploding from within by clinging to these to archaic and magic and mythic doctrines and beliefs and and religions having a hard time in other words but to tamper with it means that society is going to look continue to look more and more fragmented and in its most and its worst sense more and more narcissistic and nihilistic which is actually the case so he's ken wilbur and i agree with him thinks religion or spiritual traditions or if you even want to say the wisdom tradition is absolutely essential. We ought to be finding ways to translate the wisdom of the past, the values of the past, into the contemporary context so that we're not just tabula rasa in our ethics and morality and ideas and whatever, just a blank slate up from nothing. No, it doesn't work that way. And there are lots of people doing really good things with translating. Even even some of my podcasts that are about the Bible, one thing that I'm doing, I hope, is translating the myths, the stories, the images, and the ideas um, from their original magic mythic setting into the 21st century and asking what are the deep strands here that, that absolutely can help shape who we think we are even beneath our ego sense. So that's part of the role of, uh, I think, healthy and good translation. Um, so here, here are a couple lines from, from Ken Wilber that are worth reading. Where translative religion offers legitimacy, transformative religion offers authenticity. And he goes on to say that transformative authenticity or transformative religious authenticity is extremely rare. For those few individuals who are ready, that is, sick with the suffering of the separate self and no longer able to embrace the legitimate worldview, then a transformation or then a transformative opening to true authenticity, true enlightenment and true liberation calls more and more incessantly. I resonate with this line with every ounce of my being. I know what it's like to be sick to death of the separate self and its clinging and its identity and its belonging and its mission all been named for me and the belief system and the structure. I'm, I'm sick of my separate self and its clinginess to all that stuff. And I could personally could no longer authentically embrace the legitimate worldview that was making sense of who I was in the world. And that's to be cast out into the opening through the narrow gate and into the possibility of transformation. I'm not saying it guarantees it. I'm saying the possibility of transformation is there or going into true authenticity, true enlightenment, true liberation, and following that call, come what may. And here's uh, to finish this paragraph. And depending on your capacity for suffering, you will sooner or later answer the call of authenticity or transformation of liberation on the lost horizon of infinity. God, 
he's a good writer, depending on your capacity for suffering. And this is where safe spaces um, don't make sense. Because to follow the thread, to follow the call, to enter through the narrow gate is actually, without exception, going to increase the suffering, especially as experienced by the separate self and the ego. It's going to feel unsafe. But if you want true authenticity, Wilbur is saying, and the possibility for an ongoing deeper transformation, that's the path. That's the way. That's the narrow gate. It's going to hurt like hell. And you're going to feel unsafe. And it's going to feel dangerous. He seems to be saying something like that. Uh, so let me give you a few other lines from Wilbur. When he's talking about um, sort of the separate self. He says translation offers meaning for the separate self. And that meaning is real. And that's experienced by the separate self as real meaning. But transformation, he says grabs you by the throat and throttles you to death. Here's a quote. Authentic transformation is not a matter of belief. God, I wish it was. I wish, um, even if you want to change the beliefs from sort of like doctrine statements to beliefs about, I believe in, um, in that all things are one. You know, that's still just a, a belief statement. Authentic transformation is not a matter of belief, but of the death of the believer. Not a matter of translating the world, but of transforming the world. Not a matter of finding solace, but finding infinity on the other side of death. The self is not made content. The self is made toast. That's what I'm talking about. So even in spiritual circles, all this obsession about safe space and hearing one another has a tendency to just continue to make the self content, content, affirmed, accepted, embraced, and in the worst case, coddled. And you can easily, and I have felt this in my own life, so I'm not, I'm not really, you know, preaching against something I haven't experienced, but my own narcissistic, egoic, and small worldview coddled and protected and affirmed. That's going to lead nowhere except to more and more narcissism, more and more circling the wagons till I, I end up just gazing at my own navel. He says the self ultimately in transformative religion or spirituality makes the self, the separate self, toast. It blows it up. It annihilates it. It destroys it. It kills it. Here's another quote. No new beliefs. No new beliefs. No new paradigm. Even a clever paradigm. No new myths. No new ideas. Will staunch the encroaching anguish. The anguish being when the separate self starts to feel that existential thumb, pressure, pushing down upon it. Or something of the soul, might put it another way, is welling up and something like a mysterious thread appears and you feel like if I don't follow this thread, my life will not have the deeper meaning. I will miss out. When that begins to, uh, that, 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 um, that involves a fair amount of encroaching anguish. He says, not a new belief for the self, 
but transcendence of the self altogether, is the only path that avails. Now, a couple comments about this translative and transformative. And I guess I'm still wrestling with this because I would like, I would love for it to be the case that we don't need anything translative. Let's just go straight for the transformative. It does not appear to work that way at all. In fact, Ken Wilber is arguing for the opposite. We need more translative religion and spirituality language. We do. It needs to be healthier and less dogmatic and less egocentric and um, more world-centric. That seems to be needed in the world. We need to translate the old practices, um, especially the 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 best of the best, the meditative and contemplative and mystical strands. We need to find ways to translate that because it, it provides a certain amount of foundation, identity, belonging, and mission and purpose for the separate self, but only to the extent that it seems to be leading to the very edge of our own separate self's death, the edge of transformation and annihilation. So it's almost like as a spiritual teacher, the really good ones are talking out two sides of their mouth all the time. They're saying things like, you belong, you matter, you're, you're welcome, what can we do to help support you? And that's also done with a little wink, and out of the other side of the mouth, it's, um, so you think you know who you are? You know absolutely nothing. Um, and or, or it's like Jesus saying to Peter, Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, you're right. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, way to go, Peter. And two sentences later, he's arguing with Peter and calls Peter Satan. You have no idea what you're talking about. You do not have in mind the mystery of the kingdom. Well, how can that be? Why can't you just affirm Peter and, and help him see it instead of slamming him? Because that's what happens. Uh, the great spiritual teachers seem to be talking out of two sides of their mouth at the same time and holding the paradox and the tension. That means the best of the best, and I think Richard Rohr is one of them, can say amazing things about the wisdom tradition and then cut it to shreds in the very next sentence. We need that kind of paradox intention. Without that paradox intention, religion just becomes nothing more than a country club. And if it's all transformation, it's like it just doesn't sink in. It just goes over everyone's head. Um, I and the Father are one. What, you know, what does that even mean? Just right over your head without, um, without any kind of... Um, ongoing religious conversation for where to put a phrase like that. Okay. Let me try to um, land the plane here. Back to my original title, The Soul Doesn't Care About Your Safe Space. What I mean by soul here is the deep calling on your life. Something like your voice beneath your voice. Something like your vocation beneath your vocation. Something like the aim, the thread of possibility of, of your own wild, exuberant wholeness and creative potentials living out in the world in all of its radical, and radical means root, by the way, in all of its radical rootedness in something deep. That aspect of your soul doesn't care about your safe space. In fact, might be leading you, luring you, giving you nighttime dream visitations, trying to, to um, 
lure you right to the very edge of your so-called safe spaces, your identity, your belonging, and your meaning, and your mission, and your purpose. What would it look like to trust a bit of that luring, sweet darkness that might be beckoning you further, which is going to get your separate self totally freaked out? What would it look like? It's like Mary Oliver's poem. One day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. What would it look like to begin again? One day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. Though the voices around you, including your own, by the way, start shouting their bad advice. Mend my life, each voice cried. Fix the situation, in other words. But you didn't stop. You kept going. You knew what you had to do. This unbelievably rich and straightforward poem is talking about, I think, this very edge from translative to transformative, from the soul's aim on your life um, and following that into the unknown, into the wild night where the road is full of um, fallen branches. That's again from Mary Oliver. That's the path which... which um, is not the way of the separate self that is afraid of otherness and needs a protective space. Something of the soul wants more of you. And this is where the greatest um, archetypal images of descending into the, the cave and slaying the dragon or... Um, going into the dark forest and being cut to shreds only to be pieced back together and emerge on the other side, a transformed warrior of sorts. These are the images that, um, that I think uh, support this very notion. In this sense, if you spend the rest of your life just worrying about being affirmed, you're not going to go very far. If you spend the rest of your your uh, spiritual life, seeking out a safe enough place, you're not going to go very far. And I'm not saying that lightly. I'm saying that with some trepidation. And even as I'm saying it, I can feel in my own heart like, mm, how am I still doing that? How am I still seeking the group that best supports my ideas and what I'm comfortable with and my tastes? Um, therefore, I can just feel good about myself and be in the right, even spiritually. There's nothing more dangerous than someone who's in the right in a spiritual sense. I mean, that's even worse than someone who is so in the right politically, you know, throwing a little spirituality in its dangerous territory. Am I going to spend the rest of my life um, seeking the comfort and the coddling of this kind of conformity and needing others um, and other uh, other ideas and other people um, for a legitimate sense of self, or am I going to follow the soul's aim, the soul's thread, the soul's path that pushes me? Or maybe it's not the soul, or it's a combination of soul and the divine, or I'm going to follow the deeper divine call that continues to beckon at every present moment that there's something more. There's something beneath. There's something beyond the separate self that can not only be tasted, um, but in doing so uh, will utterly dismantle and destroy who you thought you were in only the best possible sense. And one final um, kind of dangerous thought to leave you with. This is something that I think is 
hard to uh, say without sounding um, a bit like uh, a bit like a kind of old theology that that sort of God is up there manufacturing or manipulating circumstances to sort of teach us a lesson. But sometimes I can't help wondering the unworkable situations that we find ourselves in, like an unworkable marriage, an unworkable job, an unworkable dynamic, um, some other relational dynamic, some unworkable uh, living situation. These unworkable scenarios, which when we think of causation, how do we end up here? Sometimes it's hard to know. Was the mystery involved? Was it my own choice? Was it the culture? And maybe the answer to these questions is yes. We don't know. But I think the unworkableness, it could even be these, my, my own beliefs don't even work for me anymore. Uh, there might be something of the soul. I'm not saying the soul is causing this in the old causation sense, but this is the, the terrain, the unworkableness of our life. I cannot live like this anymore becomes the very terrain in which the soul's call is growing louder. What are you going to do? Are you going to try to put it all back together again, put Humpty Dumpty back together again and set them up on the wall or in the scattered uh, fragments that are on the ground is something of the soul beginning to, to guide the way. Like Peter, when you were young, you did whatever the hell you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to be led where you do not want to go, where you have no, uh, there's no path. Uh, there's no map even other than the most general sense. There's no map of what the terrain is going to be like. That's, I think, the scary and alluring um, threshold of transformation. So, man. I hope you heard something in there that you found helpful or dangerous or both um, or alluring or it raised a question in your own mind or shined a light on your own experience uh, in, in some kind of mysterious way. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this. And um, thank you for your support and uh, for being a part of this ongoing and I think awesome conversation about the changing nature of spirituality and faith in the 21st century. So peace.